The Moth is brought to you by Progressive, home of the Name Your Price tool. You say how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. It's easy to start a quote. Visit Progressive.com to get started. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. From PRX, this is the Moth Radio Hour. I'm Meg Bowles. In this hour, we bring you four stories, all dealing with fear, phobias, and sleepless nights, from mild anxiety to true terror. Some of this fear is rational and some seemingly irrational, but for these storytellers, it's all very real. Our first story comes from Jessica Pan. She shared her story at an evening we produced at the Union Chapel in London. Here's Jessica, live at the Moth. So it was a normal day like any other. I woke up and I went to my favorite cafe and I got a cup of coffee. And while I was waiting in line for the coffee, I turned to my left and there was this box and it was filled with these little buttons. And I was curious, so I picked one up and I read it and it said, I talk to strangers. And I immediately threw the button back down because I didn't want anyone to see me holding that. I didn't want them to think that I wanted them to talk to me because I have a huge fear of talking to strangers and I never do it. I think you should talk to a stranger if you know, like your phone is broken and you're in an unfamiliar neighborhood and you've broken your leg and there's like a sudden tornado and only if all of these things happen at once. <laughs> Otherwise, don't do it. And you know, I moved to London about six years ago from Beijing and I was super excited to get here because you know, England has all this green space but it also has all of this personal space. <laughs> And when I got to London, I, I liked that it was kind of a cold city and that people kept to themselves. You know, it's the kind of place where you can be walking down the street and fall down and nobody will bat an eye because they're, <laughs> they're too embarrassed for you and they just don't want to get involved. And I felt like, these are my people, like I found them. I identify as an introvert and, and I felt quite shy and I just feel like you don't need to talk to strangers. But that day with that button, I thought, why don't I talk to strangers ever? You know, we live in a city of almost 9 million and I try to avoid all of them on public transport. And I think maybe I'll just wear this button and see what happens. And so I take the button and I sort of slip it in my pocket and I leave. And a few days later, I'm with my husband and I'm wearing the button and it's this beautiful sunny day in London and we're cycling and we're in this park. And this man walks up to me, and he starts, like, talking to me. And I'm kind of like, okay, what? And he just gives me this really disappointed look. And he says, oh, so it's not true. <laughs> and that's when I realized I'd been wearing the button, and he saw it, and I'd forgotten. And he leaves before I can say anything to him. And this happens again and again throughout the day. And this whole time, my husband, who was English, had been watching. And he just said, could you please just take the button off? Like, this is humiliating. Just take the button off. And, and I agreed. Like, I sort of failed. So I took the button off. And I thought, you know, I, I tried it. Experiment over. And I was then on a plane from New York to London. 
And I did that thing where you find your seat and you put your headphones in and you sort of make your own space so that nobody talks to you. And you give that vibe of like, we're gonna sit by each other for seven hours, but like, we're not gonna talk to each other. <laughs> and this was fine because the two men who were sitting next to me, they turned to each other to chat. And I was sort of eavesdropping. And I noticed that they were talking about, you know, where they were from, and then they were showing each other photos on their phones, and they were talking about their girlfriends, and then they were comparing barbecue recipes. And by the time we landed at Heathrow, one had invited the other one to his birthday party. <laughs> and I was completely baffled by this. Like, I had never seen this happen before, and I started thinking, is this what I'm missing by not talking to strangers? Like, am I missing out on really good barbecue recipes and birthday parties? And so I decide, you know, maybe I could try this again. And so my first day of trying to talk to strangers, I walk up to this woman at the bus stop and she sort of feels me and coming towards her and she turns away because she thinks I'm deranged. <laughs> and then I get on the bus and it's about 8.30 in the morning, I'm going to work and I sit next to another woman and she's on her phone playing Candy Crush. And I'm looking at her phone, and I'm thinking about what I can say to her. You know, we live in the same area, we're both going to work. And while I'm thinking this, she looks at me, looking at her phone, and she shoots me this really dirty look, and I just abandon the whole mission. <laughs> and I just think, I don't know if I can do this. And I get off, and I just think, I'm just gonna go get a cup of coffee and, and figure this out. And I walk into another cafe I go to a lot, and I'm about to order my coffee, and I see that there's a new barista there. And I say, oh, you're new, when did you start working here? And he says, three years ago. <laughs> and I sort of take my coffee and I skulk away and I realize that I need help. I'm a journalist and so I do have to talk to some strangers but it's under the guise of a job and so I can make myself do it. But um, also as a journalist, you get to call up experts if you don't know about a certain subject. And so I decided I would call an expert. And so I call up this man named Stefan who lives in Boston. And he specializes in curing people of phobias, including social anxiety. And he tells me that the best way that he's found of curing people of social anxiety is to have them humiliate themselves again and again. And that is so that they can see that they don't get arrested and their spouses don't leave them and they don't get you know, fired and nobody you know, exiles them. And they survive, they just look a little bit silly. And he, you know, he says, well, sometimes I have like a really shy person stand in the street and sing, or I'll have another one you know, go into the New York subway and ask 100 people for $400. Like your basic nightmare scenarios. <laughs> and I say to Stefan, what would you prescribe me? And he says, okay, so you're scared of talking to strangers and you're a little bit shy and you live in London, so I would have you ask strangers a really stupid question. And he says, here's your question and you can only say these words and nothing else. Excuse me, I just forgot, is there a Queen of England? And if so, what is her name? And he says that, you know, when I decide to do this, I can't, you know, just pick like friendly grandmas or, you know, people holding puppies and babies because that's called safety behavior and I won't actually cure my fear. And as soon as I hang up the phone with Stefan, I think, thank God he's not my therapist and I do not have to do this because that would be terrible. 
And a few days later, I'm having lunch, and I hear this voice in my ear, and it's a man, and he says, do you mind if I sit here? And I say, sure, go ahead. And he takes a seat, and I'm looking at him, and I'm thinking, this is my chance, you know, I can do this. And he puts his phone away finally, and I just ask him where he's from, and he says, France. And I say the first thing that pops in my head, which is, of course, are you offended by Brexit? And he's, it wasn't my best work, but um, I hadn't really thought through what I'd actually say to these people when I finally talked to them. But the conversation recovers, and we have like sort of a nice chat, and I leave feeling kind of good about it. And from then on, for the next few weeks, I start talking to strangers, you know, a little bit small talk. I talk to, you know, people on the bus about the weather, or I'll talk to people who have dogs in the park, or, you know, grandmas and their grandchildren. These things that I know Stefan would say are safety behavior. And that's because whenever I have these interactions, I still feel that little feeling of trepidation that I'm still scared of talking to people that I don't know. And I know the only way to cure this. And so I'm standing on an underground platform and I'm feeling really nervous and I don't want to do what I'm supposed to do and I don't think I can. And finally I just decide to take the plunge. I'm just going to do it. And so I flag down the first man I see when I decide. And he stops and I say, excuse me, I just forgot. And he looks at me and he goes, yes? And I say, is there a Queen of England? And if so, what is her name? And he raises his eyebrows and he goes, the Queen of England. And I say, yes, who is she? <laughs> and he goes, it's Victoria. And he gets on the train, and he leaves. <laughs> and of all the scenarios I had ever imagined, this was not one of them. And I'm so confused that I immediately flag down the next person I see, which is another man in his 20s, carrying a gym bag. And I say, excuse me, I just forgot. Is there a queen of England? And if so, what is her name? And he says, it's Victoria. He gets on the train, and he leaves. And at this point, I am so confused. And, and I'm just thinking, does anyone know who the Queen of England is? Do I know who the Queen of England is? And finally, I recover, and I ask four women in a row, and they each tell me, Elizabeth. And, you know, some of them laugh, and some of them think I'm a bit strange, and... One asks if I'm okay, but, you know, none of them arrested me or, you know, my husband didn't leave me. I wasn't fired from my job. I survived. And I don't know what was going on with those men who were subjects of Queen Victoria. I don't know if they were confused or if it's like a rule in England where if an American asks you a really dumb question, you have to lie to her. Probably. But, you know, after that experiment, I realized that Stefan was right. You know, I haven't been completely cured of my social anxiety, but doing that experiment made me feel exhilarated. And now when I'm on the tube or the train, I do try to talk to strangers because I think it's nice. And that means that if you see me, I'm coming for you. And <laughs> we might have a chat, but I promise we'll both survive. Thank you.
Jessica Pan is still writing and living in London. She's the author of the book, Sorry I'm Late, I Didn't Want to Come, One Introvert's Year of Saying Yes. She told me she still has the I Talk to Strangers button sitting on her nightstand to remind her that people can be kind even if they are being idiots on public transport. She's never worn the button again, but she still works up the nerve to talk to strangers. You can find out more about Jessica on our website, themoth.org. Coming up, a high-anxiety trip down a British motorway when the Moth Radio Hour continues. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. Support for the moth comes from Odoo. What is Odoo? Well, Odoo is the only software your business will ever need. Featuring a suite of integrated business applications, Odoo connects your business operations together so that you can get more done in less time. Odoo has apps for everything. CRM, accounting, sales, HR, inventory, marketing, manufacturing, you name it, Odoo's got it. To learn more, visit odoo.com slash moth. That's O-D-O-O dot com slash moth. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Meg Bowles. Our next story of fear and anxiety comes from Nick Revel. And I just want to mention two quick things that might cause confusion for people who live outside of Great Britain. Nick mentions an Embassy Regal, which is a mid-priced British cigarette brand. And he refers to the Docklands, which is a riverfront area in London, formerly part of the Port of London, that was closed in the 1960s and went through urban redevelopment in the 1980s. Here's Nick Revel, live at Union Chapel in London. So, it's 1988, and I'm driving home from a gig up north, can't remember exactly where it was, somewhere in the northwest, because I'm coming down the M6, and I decide to pull off at Keel Services to get a coffee. And as I'm walking in, there's a scouser hanging around by the doorway of the services. And uh, for any foreigners who don't know what scouser is, it's a slang word for people from Liverpool. It's not, not got any pejorative connotations at all, except in the mind of prejudiced people. Uh, But I have to confess that when the specific scouser in question is standing outside a motorway services at two in the morning wearing just a t-shirt and jeans and it's February and he's not shivering and he's got a tattoo of a dotted line around his neck with cut here and a pair of scissors (laughs) over his jugular vein it can conjure up the odd negative connotation, (laughs) even in a non-prejudiced person. And uh, he says, excuse me, mate, any chance of a lift to London? And I think, yeah, right. (laughs) 
And I go in and I have a coffee and something to eat and half an hour later I come out and what were the chances this scouser still hasn't found somebody <laughs> to give him a lift? And he says to me, excuse me mate, any chance of a lift to London? Uh, and I don't want to give him a lift if I'm being honest. Uh, but I want to be polite to him. I want to say no to him in such a way that he will still like and respect me. <laughs> Ideally, what I want to be able to do is to go back to my car and drive past him with my nice, in my nice car with the three empty seats and the heater and the stereo. And as he stands there in the pissing rain in the middle of nowhere, in the middle of the night with no money, I want to watch him so I want him to watch me going past, going to exactly where he's going to go, wants to go, and I want him to say to himself, there goes a really nice bloke. <laughs> and I'm trying to think of a polite way of doing this, you know, and I realise that I can't lie to him. I could have said, oh, I'm sorry, I'm turning off at the next exit, but that only occurred to me to say it last week. <laughs> I realize that I can't lie to this guy. I realize in retrospect, I can only lie to people who I love and I really care for. <laughs> so I'm stuttering and I, oh well, and he says, only the thing is, if I can get to Docklands by eight o'clock in the morning, I've got this job on a building site. Oh no, because it's 1988. Britain is a divided country. The southeast, the economy is thriving and booming everywhere else in the country. Massive unemployment. They call it the North-South Divide. And Docklands is the icon of the whole thing. The government of the time are just deregulating the financial industry. And they're building a whole new financial district in Docklands and Canary Wharf. And the theory is that deregulated financial services, along with cutting taxes for the wealthy will make the wealthy even more wealthy and then they will spend their money and through the trickle-down theory everyone in the country in a few brief years will share in that prosperity and become richer themselves anyway so he's thrown this shot straight into my social conscience. I'm skewered on this remark. The north-south divide is now actually happening to me. I mean, I agonize about the unemployment figures every morning when I read about them in The Guardian. But now somebody wants me to actually do something about it. But I'm a liberal. Action wasn't in the mission statement. I've made polemical and passionate tirades against the iniquities of this government's social policies in some of the most expensive restaurants in the West End of London. Isn't that enough? And then I think to myself, of course I should give this guy a lift. I should trust him. What is a society without trust? I should give him a lift. So I say to him, yeah, sure, I'll give you a lift, mate. I'm parked just over here. He goes, oh, great. Eh, there's me two mates as well, like. <laughs> These two bigger scousers with similar tattoos come out of the shadows. I'd actually already noticed them. I just thought they were trees. 
and I'm feeling really nervous. There's no way out. I'm walking towards the car with them, and I'm thinking, okay, it's okay. They're probably okay, but if any trouble starts, just give them the keys immediately, and you won't get hurt. In fact, give them the keys now. Ask if you can have a lift with them. So we get to the car, uh, the Fiat Uno, we open the boot and we get in their bags, they're carrying bags of tools, they have builders, uh, they have bricklayers' trowels and chisels, one of them's carrying a hod, we get the bags in the back and as they're loading the, 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 the bags into the back I can see that they've got rather amateur tattoos on their knuckles and hands, I'm thinking, prison tattoos? It's okay Nick, they're not in prison now. So we get the bags into the back and then the hod we put in over the rear seats and slide it down the side of the passenger seat which is where the hatchback feature of the Fiat Uno really comes into its own. <laughs> And we get into the car and we're driving off. And I'm driving down the slip road faster than I normally do because I want to get up to 40 or 50 as fast as possible because I'm thinking if we're traveling at that speed, they can't possibly do anything. And then I'm thinking to myself, calm down, Nick. They say they're builders. They've got tools of the trade in the back. And the paranoid part of me is thinking, yeah, tools of the trade, they're going to beat me unconscious with a chisel and a bricklayer's trowel, and then for a coup de grace, they're going to smash me over the head with the hod and leave me in a shallow grave with a triangular head. And it's bound to be a shallow grave. They're builders. They'll never dig it to the correct specifications. Calm down, Nick. You'll be okay. And we're talking. They're asking me questions. I'm asking them questions. What bands we like, where we've been on holiday, what we've done since we left school. Turns out I was right about the prison tattoos. We're talking the universal male language of football, discussing which games we've been to where crowd trouble has got as far as the news. They beat me by a long chalk on that one. And we're chatting away. And to be honest, I can't remember much of the conversation, partly because I was nervous and my life was, for some reason, flashing in front of my eyes. But it must have been a friendly conversation because the journey went in no time, 200 miles down the motorway, and bang, we're in London, come off the M1, onto the North Circular, and suddenly the first traffic light for 200 miles and it's turning red. We're slowing down and I'm thinking, oh boy, we're slowing down at the lights. Don't be stupid, Nick, it's okay. If they wanted to roll you, they'd have done it in the car park. And we pull up at this red light and the guy who's sitting in the front pulls a knife out of his pocket and holds it up to my face. Well, actually, it was an embassy regal, but for a moment, <laughs> it really looked like a knife. I smoked that cigarette so fast. <laughs> so we're driving into town. I'm saying, guys, I live in Holloway. I live in North London. I, Docklands is a real dog leg for me, and I'm really tired. I can't take you all the way out there, but what I will do, I'll take you into the centre of town, I'll take you to Trafalgar Square. All the night buses in London go through Trafalgar Square. There's London Transport staff there. They'll tell you which bus to get on. You'll have no problem getting to Docklands by 8 in the morning. <clears throat> We're driving down the Haymarket, and I'm really glad I've given these guys a lift. You know, I'm really glad they've given me the company and the conversation has made the journey go quicker. But if I'm being honest, I'm still only going to be 100% relaxed when they are actually out of the car. We're coming down the Haymarket, just pulling into Trafalgar Square, 
And the biggest of them, who had to sit in the back because the seatbelt wouldn't stretch around his torso, he sort of leans in like in a mafia movie and goes, so you're thinking of dropping us in Trafalgar Square, are you? I'm thinking, oh no, I see it all now. Of course they weren't going to roll me in the car park. They're from Liverpool. I've read about them in the Daily Mail. They're too lazy to do all the driving to London. They're going to let me do all the work, and this is where they're going to take the car. Why didn't I just say to them politely in the car park, sorry, I don't trust you because you're poor, but in a nice way. <laughs> anyway, we pull up in front of the National Gallery, and uh, I say to the guy, well, yeah, I'm going to drop you in Trafalgar Square. Have you got a problem with that? He said, yeah, I've got a problem with that. What problem? It's four o'clock in the morning. Won't it be really dangerous for us in Trafalgar Square? <laughs> I said to them, I said, guys, trust me, you'll be fine. <laughs> Thanks. Nick Revel is a British writer and comedian. He no longer picks up hitchhikers, mainly because he doesn't have a car anymore. The Fiat Uno is long gone. He says he thinks times have changed. You hardly see hitchhikers out these days. He imagines they're probably scared of the drivers. On our website, you can find out more about Nick and his radio series, Broken Dreamcatcher, which aired on BBC Radio 4, and his stage show entitled Eurasia's Most Eligible Psychopaths and Their Lovely Homes. Our next story comes from Katie Houghton Ward. She shared it at one of our Open Mic Story Slams down in Melbourne, Australia, where we partner with the Australian Broadcasting Corporation, ABCRN. Here's Katie, live at the Moth. Uh, Hi, I've never really done this kind of thing before, but uh, I figure the lights are inspiring. (laughs) Um, Well, I'm a mother of two small children, and uh, after a very hard time and uh, a lot of arguments and a little pain. I took my two babies and we moved to Tasmania, just me and my babies. At that time, uh, my son was two and a half and my daughter was one and a half. And I moved to a mountain in the middle of nowhere, pretty much. And I was overlooking the sea every morning and I, I'd wake up with these babies and the golden light would come over the ocean and I'd have these two babies and I was looking at my, my partnership. It was gone. I was looking ahead of me and I was going, what the fuck am I going to do? And I've got these babies and I was like just smile and read the book, you know, like go along with it. And I thought, I was laying there and I had these two babies on either side of me on a mountain in the middle of nowhere overlooking the ocean and I heard something outside and I thought to myself, my God, what am I going to do if there's somebody out there that's going to come in here and they're going to they're attack me and they're going to attack my children and what am I going to do? I need a man to protect me. What am I going to do? And I thought, I had these two little babies and I gripped them really tight. And I thought, I need a man. I've got to get a man. I need a man. And then there was a voice in the back of my head that goes, you don't need a man, mate. (laughs) 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 You got this. (laughs) And I was like, who's going to protect me? And the voice in the back of my head said, you are. (laughs) And I was like, okay, great. Resolve. I've got resolve. I got these two babies and determination. And I walked out the next morning after, you know, my mum who was living far away, she drove over and she watched the babies. She goes, You need a break. And I was like, Yeah, I'm hearing voices. Um, 
And, and then I walked down the street and there was only a few things that were around and there was a fish and chip shop and I heard this, this really, the sound you'll never hear anywhere was two swords clanging together. And I thought, is this Highlander? Am I tripping? I really need a nap. It's been a long week. Uh, and then I went there and there was this store and there was knickknacks and everything like that. And I walked in and there was a man with a long grey beard and he said, g'day. And I was like, g'day. And he goes, my name's Ned. <laughs> and I was like, hi, Ned. And he's like, uh, what are you in here for? And I was like, I heard these swords. And he goes, oh, yeah. Yeah, don't worry about that. And I was like, okay, uh, I'll just look at some stuff. <laughs> and then I kept walking around. He goes, why, 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 why are you curious about the swords? And I was like, oh, it's just, oh, don't worry, don't worry about it, don't worry about it. And he goes, no, 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 just tell me about the swords. And I was like, well, actually, I've got two little babies and... I, you know, I'm looking for some martial arts or some Aikido or something like that. And he's just like, he goes, how do you feel about sword fighting? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I've seen it on a film. It looks pretty good. And he was like, oh, yeah, do you reckon you could do it? <laughs> and I was like, oh, I guess if someone made me do it, I guess I could do it. And he's like, oh, yeah. And he goes, come upstairs. <laughs> and I was like, I was like, oh, I don't know. This is rural Tasmania. And I'm like, if there's any Tasmanians in here, I love it. It's beautiful and everyone there. <laughs> but I was like, oh, I don't know. And he's like, no, 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 it's fine. It's fine. It's fine. <laughs> and I was like, okay. So I'm gingerly walking up the stairs behind Ned, Lord Ned. And I walk, <laughs> no kidding, Lord Ned. And I walk up there and it's like the fight club of the Knights Templar. I am not kidding you. There are banners with the Knights Templar. And there are ten big dudes in armour, full-blown armour, fighting each other. And I'm like, what the fuck? And I, my first thing was just like, okay, I really need a nap. <laughs> Parenting is tough. Uh, and then he's like what do you reckon, you got it in you? And I was like, I don't know, Ned. Uh, I kind of don't know what's going on. <laughs> and he's like, well, we're a rare uh, faction of the Knights Templar. And I was like, you're the Knights Templar? And he's like, yes, we are. <laughs> and I was like, had the Knights of Neat going in my head. And I was just like, this is not for real. So anyway, he goes, he goes do you want to have a crack at it? And I was like, yeah, I'll have a crack at it. Yeah, I'll have a crack at it. <laughs> I was like, ferocious. I was like, I'm going to protect my kids. And then he hands me a sword. And then I thought, okay, he's just going to make me hit a few bags, do things like that. And then he calls up three massive men in armour and he goes, get at her. <laughs> and I was like, are you kidding? And he's like, we just want to see how you go, that's all. And I was like, uh, Ned, I know how I'll go. That's terrifying. <laughs> and he's like, no, give it a crack, give it a crack. I was like, okay. So these guys are trying to hit me with a sword. I've got no sword skill set at all. I'm just like waving it, crying, waving it, crying. And he's like, you're doing great. You're doing great. And I've got a helmet on and it's 35 degrees. And I'm like padding, shirt, sweat dripping down my face. And there's someone, you can do it in the background. <laughs> I'm like, I'm not doing it. I'm not doing it. And then I go to sit down. And I thought, I can't do it, I can't do it. And then this, this big figure stands over me and they take their helmet off. And this piercing blue eyes hit me. And it's a woman, the only woman in there. And she goes, get up. <laughs> and I was like, she goes, get up. <laughs> and I was like, okay. <laughs> so I put my helm back on, I fight. 
And six months later, after rigorous training, I fought 35 men and I am now a registered Knights Templar man-at-arms. Thank you. Thank you very, very, very much. And why I have my two babies growing strong and they're five and four now, when I hear something outside, I open up the door. That was Katie Houghton Ward. Katie is a comic book artist and a fine artist and it publishes under the alias KT Hollywood. Her work has appeared in Heavy Metal Magazine and Gestalt Comics. You can find out more about her artwork and see pictures of Katie in all her armored glory at our website, themoth.org. Was there a time when your fear held you back? Or a time when you ran straight in and threw caution to the wind? We'd love to hear it. You can pitch us a short version of your story on our website, themoth.org. My name is Aviva Gold. Here I am, a New York Jewish lady in her 50s, the oldest and most physically unfit person on our trek in the Himalayas of Nepal. Now on the second night after a day of struggling and falling and being bruised, I'm sobbing outside my tent, having a panic attack, certain I'm going to die here. Not surprisingly, the organizers plan to send me back to Kathmandu. But unbeknown to me, our Sherpa tells them he will get me through this trek even if he has to carry me. Walking behind me, I can feel his love holding me steady. His determination really carries me through this physical and altitude-demanding process to a surprise triumph. At the end, my only fear really is going back to civilization. Remember, you can pitch us your story at themoth.org. Coming up, Facing Fear, head on, when the Moth Radio Hour continues. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts, and presented by PRX. This is the Moth Radio Hour from PRX. I'm Meg Bowles, and our last story comes from Sudesh Dahad. Sudesh told this story at the Union Chapel in London just a few weeks after a car was driven into a crowded sidewalk on Westminster Bridge. It was just outside the Palace of Westminster, which is home to the British Parliament. Four people died, and more than 50 people were injured. I just want to note that Sudesh's story deals with some intense and frightening situations and may not be appropriate for all listeners. Here's Sudesh Dahad, live at the Moth. So a few weeks ago, I was sitting at my desk at work when I overheard a couple of colleagues behind me discussing uh, some breaking news about an incident outside Westminster. I turned around to ask them what had happened, and they told me, that there'd been a suspected terrorist incident there. As soon as I heard this, I felt my stomach sink and I found it difficult to breathe and um, I felt tears welling up. I couldn't believe what had happened. At that moment, 
a sense of dread took over me and I felt that there was something more to happen. It, it didn't feel safe to be in the city. So um, even though I was over a mile away from uh, Westminster, I still felt like I was in danger. So I just packed up my bags and left the office and hurried home. Fear has become an everyday part of my life now and it's, uh, it doesn't feel like it's something inside me. It feels more like it's uh, something external that follows me in the shadows. Yeah. It's not that uh, I'm afraid of death, but I'm more afraid of the consequences of my death for the people that depend on me. And uh, as a single father, I worry especially what would happen if some, to my daughter if something happened to me. Back in 2005, one morning, I was on my way to work as usual, and my train arrived in, at the uh, overground station in King's, in King's Cross a few minutes later than usual, so I hurried down towards the underground. When I arrived on the Piccadilly Line platform, it was a little bit busier than usual, but a couple of trains passed, and uh, I couldn't board. They were all already packed, so I waited. When the third train came along, I just got uh, bundled on, uh, to, well, I was carried forward into the carriage in the surge of the crowd getting onto the train. When I got on, I was, um, well, sardines and tin cans came to mind. It was so busy, and uh, the driver tried to close the door a few times, but uh, there were still people clamoring onto the train. Um, I suppose they overestimated how thin they were, and they were still blocking the doors. Eventually, the driver did manage to close the doors, and the train left the station. After a few seconds, I sensed a flash, and then the lights went out. Um, I heard a, a loud bang, and a popping sound, and then another popping sound. And, um, and then the train jolted to a halt, and I don't know how, but uh, I found myself on the floor and uh, without really realizing how I, I don't know how I got there. Um, and oddly, suddenly there was lots of space around me. Um, for a moment, I thought it was a nightmare and somebody would wake me from it, from this bad dream. But then as I realized it was, uh, that it was, a, it was probably a terrorist attack, the blood drained away from my face, and um, then uh, the next thing I, the next thing I thought in my head was that I was probably dead, and uh, the scene around me was something that, like uh, some artistic illustrations I'd seen of Dante, of um, Purgatory and Dante's Inferno. Under the dim lights of mobile phones, and um, all I could see was. Um, some people on the floor, some people standing, and some people in between. I could hear some screaming and crying, but it seemed to be in the distance. I didn't know where it was coming from. The smell, well, the smell was like the day after Guy Fawkes night, uh, quite uh, unpleasant. Um, I felt my head and I felt my limbs, and I realized I was actually still alive. And in that moment, all I, the only thought in my head was that I should 
I just need to get home as quickly as, my, as quickly as possible and get home to my daughter. After a few minutes, the driver managed to start passing a message down the carriage saying that we could evacuate through his cabin and walk down to the next station. Uh, so as I got down from the train onto the tracks, the narrow gap between the tra narrow and uneven gap between the tracks, I um, still felt a sense of dread because I thought, this can't be the end of it, something else is going to happen or um, I'm going to fall over and electrocute myself on the rails or something like that because I didn't know, or well, none of us knew with whether the rails were live or whether they'd, been <clears throat> whether they'd been switched off. It took us about 10 minutes to walk down the tunnel and reach Russell Square Station. When we got there, the station staff helped, helped us off the um, tracks and onto the platform and then they showed us up the stairs. The 171 steps up to the top seemed endless, but as uh, I ascended, I felt an increasing sense of relief as we got closer to daylight. Up at um, ground level, the station was, um, inside the station it was empty because everybody was being kept out of the station for obvious reasons. Um, but I didn't know what to do and I, because I had cuts and uh, bruises and had some blood on me and uh, I didn't really know whether I was injured and whether I needed medical attention or not, so I waited. But then after a while I saw um, other people who were much more seriously injured emerging from the staircase, some being carried up, um, some being helped up or carried on stretchers. So I thought I should probably just uh, move away and uh, let, let them get attention first. So the station staff, uh, after a while, they ushered us into the hotel next door and said we'd be more comfortable waiting there. But then uh, soon after that, somebody ran in, I don't know who it was, but they ran in panicking and saying there'd been another explosion and we should all get out. It made no sense at all because um, nobody knew where was safe and where wasn't safe at that time. So even though it seemed irrational, we all complied with the instructions and ran out, scattering in different directions. I started running towards King's Cross and after about 50 yards, I stopped and noticed a couple of other people who looked like they'd been on the same train. So we got talking and then we all started heading towards uh, King's Cross together. One of my uh, fellow survivors was, uh, he had a um, gash on his head and another one, she had a, a gash in her arm and we were all covered in soot and we looked dishevelled. Uh, um, we were in, uh, well, our clothes were all bloodstained. But amazingly, nobody seemed to notice us as we were walking through the busy streets and uh, nobody even gave us a glance. That was until we got to, to Cam just outside Camden Town Hall and then a council worker asked us if we needed some first aid and she said the city was on lockdown so we wouldn't be able to go much further anyway. The whole of Bloomsbury was inside a police cordon. So we went inside and they gave us, the staff there gave us some fresh clothes and tea and sandwiches and we waited in the lounge. Uh, while we were watching TV in the lounge, that was the first we heard of um, the other incidents and the true horror of what had happened on that day started emerging. 
after a few hours, we were able to get outside the, cord the police cordon, so I made my way to Euston, where my brother was waiting in a car. So I got into the car and we set off um, up the A1 towards, towards our hometown. Once we got beyond Mill Hill and into the green belt just outside London, the sounds of sirens and helicopters stopped and it was beautifully peaceful. That evening, um, on the first night, the nightmares began and every time I closed my eyes, the whole scene from the day, uh, from the morning, replayed in my head, the train pulling out of the station, then a loud bang, then the pop and another pop from the shock waves. And then I'd find myself waking up with my head and chest bathed in a cold sweat. Sometimes I'd see this scene even while I was awake. Um, so it's, yeah, it's just, uh, I felt scared to close my eyes or go to sleep. I went to my GP a few days later, not knowing uh, how to deal with this. and. Uh, asked for advice, but he said that it was too soon to get any help because uh, it takes about two months for the adrenaline levels to return to normal in your body after a physical shock like that. I wasn't prepared to wait for two months, so after about a week I heard that an emergency response centre had been set up just near Victoria Station, so I went along to see what I could find out, try and get some more information and see what help was available. Some Red Cross ladies invited me to sit down and have a cup of tea and tell my story, say what had happened. So I did that and as I got towards the end of the story, they um, told, told me that, uh, while, while I had thought I was at the opposite end of the train from where the explosion was, they told me that actually the explosion was in my carriage and as soon as they said that, I felt a chill down go, my go down my spine. I went home and I tried to get back to normal as soon as I could and try to work from home for a while, but I couldn't really focus on anything or concentrate. I couldn't even laugh or smile for weeks. So um, I spoke to my HR department and they said, well, we really recommend you take a couple of weeks off on special leave. So when I got back, I, I um, booked a holiday to the Lake District and took my family up there uh, for a week. On the, uh, on the way up to Lake District in the car, it's about a five-hour car journey, um, I kept dreading that anything that could go wrong would go wrong, like uh, maybe somebody crashing into us or um, something falling out of the sky or... Um, even concrete blocks being dropped from bridges, like some vandals used to in the decade before. But we got there unharmed and had lots of uh, long walks and good food, and I came back with uh, nightmares receding a little bit. But uh, for years after that, I was able to avoid the underground and... Uh, uh, preferred to walk or cycle through London whenever I could, but sometimes the weather didn't, didn't permit, so uh, I'd have to go down and take the tube. And whenever I did so, I'd feel my heart pounding as I approached the tube and uh, my palms sweating, and then sometimes I'd let the, let the trains go, and uh, it, would, it would probably be about two or three trains before I had the courage to board one. 
a couple of years ago, I noticed that my daughter was uh, having the same fears as I was, but not for herself, but she was afraid uh, every time I went away or every time I went on a flight or the Eurostar particularly, she was worried about what would happen to me. And uh, I didn't really, you know, I, I didn't want her to uh, grow up with these thoughts and I uh, felt that something had to change. We had to take back control of uh, uh, our lives and st stop kind of hiding away from these fears. But I knew something had to change, but I didn't know how to, because how do you allay your child's fears when, when you have the same fears yourself? Then a year ago, my daughter was diagnosed with a long-term stress-related illness, and then uh, I knew that I had to do something. So people often uh, tell me how lucky I am to be here today, uh, lucky to be given a second chance and uh, lucky to be relatively physically unharmed, but not all injuries are visible to the eye. The truth is, the, um, I don't think the fear will ever escape. Uh, I don't think I'll ever escape from the fear, rather. And uh, it's, it's always going to be there, overshadowing us in the background. But I know that um, I don't want it to dominate, and I know I want to... Um, I don't want my daughter to be affected by that either. But also accept that it, it is there. So sometimes, when, especially when events like uh, those of a few weeks ago take place, I know it's okay to have these irrational thoughts and just uh, pack up my bags and go home. That was Sudesh Dahad. The attacks in London on July 7, 2005, targeted commuters during the morning rush hour. Three bombs were detonated on the underground and a fourth on a double-decker bus. 52 people were killed and more than 700 were injured in the attacks. Sudesh still works in the finance industry in London as a risk specialist. He is also trained as a therapist specializing in the use of sound and sonic vibrations to help heal trauma victims. You can find out more about Sudesh and all the storytellers you've heard in this hour by visiting our website, themoth.org. That's it for this episode. We hope you'll join us again next time for the Moth Radio Hour. This hour was Meg Bowles. Meg also directed the stories and the show. The rest of the Moth directorial staff includes Catherine Burns, Sarah Haberman, Sarah Austin Janess, and Jennifer Hickson. Production support from Emily Couch. 
Small stories are true as remembered and affirmed by the storytellers. Our theme music is by The Drift. Other music in this hour from Blue Dot Sessions and Thomas Bergerson. You can find links to all the music we use at our website. The Moth Radio Hour is produced by me, Jay Allison, with Vicki Merrick at Atlantic Public Media in Woods Hole, Massachusetts. This hour was produced with funds from the National Endowment for the Arts. The Moth Radio Hour is presented by the Public Radio Exchange, prx.org. To find out more about our podcast, to get information on pitching us your own story, and everything else, go to our website, themoth.org.